working with adolescent athletes is about providing a safe environment. And that's not necessarily just a safe environment about food and nutrition. It's a safe environment about body image and the language that's used, the respect that you have for yourself and the respect that you have for others. Food is a great opportunity, provides a great opportunity for you to connect with people, with, and in this case, young people. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We are both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. We are also both researchers in sports nutrition at Monash University, and we love translating the often complex science of sports nutrition into simple and practical strategies. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask. Maybe the stuff you talk about during training, or it might be at the coffee table after your session. So our aim is to break it down and invite a guest expert or um, researcher to discuss that particular question. So that's normally in part A. And then we'll have an athlete or a coach or a combination of athlete coach to add their perspective and give some practical takeaways. And that will be in part B. How are you going, Alan? I'm good, thanks, Steph. Feeling productive for a change. Now that school holidays are over and kids are back to school, I feel like I'm getting stuff done and things are getting ticked off the old to-do list, and uh, which is just as well because semester starts in, in a couple of weeks' time here in Australia. Um, yeah. So, you know, we need to get things organised and ready to go from that perspective. And um, Sports Dietitians Australia, their course that I help coordinate, um, that kicks off in late March as well. So a lot of stuff to get yeah. done, but I feel like I'm finally ploughing through getting things it. and getting it done, which is a really good feeling. That's so good. Yeah. And are you able to like get out on the bike and, and stuff as well with the kids going back to, to um, school? Little bits and pieces here and there. Not as much as I'd like. You, obviously, yeah. we always like more. Um, yeah. But yeah, 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 no, I have been able to get out a bit, which has been nice. And how about you? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm good. I'm good. Uh, yeah, just uh, been getting out running. And it's it's like today, I was so silly. I went at like 10 or 11 o'clock so you know wanted to get some work done and then went out for a run and I was like and then I didn't I hadn't been outside yet so I bloody wore pants because my shorts were in the wash and it was stinking hot, hot. Mm. um but yeah so I've been getting out pretty consistently with with my runs which is great and I've been enjoying going to the servo station after and downing the slushies uh -huh, there you go Yep. Yeah, so good. So you're post-cooling, not pre-cooling. Yeah, I post-cool, yep, yep, yep. And then I do a bit of during cooling when I'm like absolutely bugging and I just stop at every water station and just saturate myself with water, <laughs> <laughs> drown rat. So that the poor not not drink. Yep, yep, yep. exactly. <laughs> um, so we are on today's episode. We've got episode 31A, Alan. Yes, yeah, new new topic today. Uh, we mentioned last week the shout out to um, Basil who suggested this uh, via social media. Well, probably about three to six months ago, I reckon. Yeah. Um, and it's just taken us a while to to get things organised. But our question this week is: How are nutritional needs of young athletes different to adults? 
uh, and we're joined by Professor Ben Desbro to help us answer that question from Griffith University. Mm, yep, very lucky. So um, before we get stuck into that, just uh, so our social media shout outs and questions. So Instagram? Yeah, we just had one on Instagram this week from Alison Higgins um, and she saw our little um, teaser for last week's episode with Dr. Stephen Lane uh, and she said that she was looking forward to that one all week. So thank you, Alison. Awesome. hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And um, I think that's pretty much all we've had on social media this week. I think busy, people have been busy and productive like me and off social media a little bit maybe. Um, <laughs> but as usual, Steph, you don't need social media to give you feedback. <laughs> you just walk down the street and uh, people people come out of nowhere to give you feedback on the podcast. So who have you heard from this week? <laughs> uh, so I have heard from uh, Vic. Scout Sonus. I hope I've said her surname correctly. I, I usually just call her Vic. Um, and she's a keen Deneen runner, um, so I get to run with her sometimes. And she's also um, been lovely enough to, to do my study. Um, so, yeah, she said, oh, my gosh, I'm excited about this one, which was related to Trent's um, uh, episode, which was on, um, you know, how to make use of data monitoring and and joining that into nutrition. Uh, and then also Hayley George, um, also a Deneen runner, um, she mentions when I when I spoke about a project that we've got our hopefully is like mid, maybe mid this year, we're going to work on something like a, a, you know, a Patreon page and an education site. Um, she mentioned that she's subscribing. Um, so we've already got one. So we're, Early adopter. we're all good. <laughs> Um, so we'll keep her to that um, and then we also had some some great feedback from um, Jonathan Ennis King um, and um, he's been awesome in in completing two of my studies so he mm. keeps coming back for more um, he was even going to do yours our but um, unfortunately just because of um, age bracket and changes in physiology etc um, you know isn't able to do that one but um, perhaps in the future we'll have something else for him uh, anyway, he said he's now up to date on all the kind of back catalogue of the, the long munch. Um, he was often listening to it in our study. Uh, he said, thanks for all the valuable information. Um, and he said, my review of the long munch would be it's like Science of Ultra, which is another podcast, um, but it's um, just for nutrition mostly um, and with a more laid back Aussie approach. Lots of proper science matched with great application, all very cool. This is used to describe multi-hour treadmill tests in 30 or 35 degrees Celsius. He's referring to um, your study there, Steph. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then a suggestion from him is um, looking at perhaps giving three things that, um, that our listeners can do um, from the sort of topics we talk about. Um, putting that into practice. So we'll try and do that a, a, a bit more. Um, sometimes we perhaps forget to do that. Um, so, yeah, so we'll, we'll try and put that into the, the following episodes. Yeah. Yep. Thanks mm. so much, Jonathan, for the great feedback. Mm. Yeah. Um, Apple Podcast Hour? Yeah, we had another five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. So obviously they're anonymous. So thank you, whoever left that for us. 
Um, so yeah, it's great to see people put in the, the ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or any of the other platforms that do that because it helps um, spread the message of the podcast a bit further and allow us to get information out to more people, um, which yeah. is obviously, as we said, the, the goal of this podcast yeah. is to help as many people as we can by answering their common nutrition questions. So uh, the more ratings and reviews on there, the, the better that gets. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a reminder uh, to our listeners that you can find us on social media at The Long Manch. So that's on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Um, and also just in terms of research, so I know um, last week we mentioned the um, some of the Monash studies that we're running um, and um, that was re- regarding the pre and probiotic and a hydration study. Um, and then uh, another one that's running is a youth um, study by Pascal Young. She's doing her PhD at the moment. Very appropriate um, with surname Young. Yeah, <laughs> is actually. Um, and um, the heading is Young, Distance Runners Wanted. So they're studying the impact of endurance um, running on, on young athletes um, and that's specifically in relation to gut and immune health. So they're wanting to recruit runners aged between 15 and 18 years old. Um, they need to be able to complete three hours running at a moderate kind of intensity, so nice talking pace. Um, and it's at base um, in um, near Clayton. Um, and then I guess the the benefits to them is they can receive, you know, results in terms of a full fitness assessment and then how their body is responding to that endurance exercise. Um, in terms of commitment, there's uh, about, I think, three visits. Um, so they'll do, you know, a fitness test VO2 max, and then they'll run on the treadmill for three hours. Um, and they'll also have potentially a DEXA scan as well, looking at um, bone health. So if anyone is interested in that, please contact Pascal. Um, and we will add this, and I think I've also got to actually add the other ones. We'll add that onto our social media. Yep, yep. So maybe a couple of days off school for some budding young ultra runners. Mm, yeah. What better? Um, that's a good excuse to get a school, right? <laughs> I think they'll even get a certificate for it. <laughs> And uh, what about a rant hour? I'm pretty sure I was fired up on our last one, so I reckon it's your turn. Yep, yep. Um, so obviously our topic today is around nutrition for younger athletes, uh, and I think this is something, Steph, that both you and I see. Well, there's, there's probably two rants here. One is in terms of the kids and one is in terms of the parents. Um, yep. But I guess, you know, often, and we'll, we'll talk about this more in, in today's episode and probably next week as well, is, you know, you often see younger athletes, um, you know, obviously highly influenced, as as we all are, but um, probably even more so at that age, uh, wanting to be like, I guess, the elite senior athletes that they aspire to one day become. Um, and so what you tend to see is thinking, okay, well, what, what do the senior athletes do? And I should copy that or do that as well. And I know you've had this rant before, Steph, that, um, you know, people trying to look at, you know, well, what are the top guys doing? That's what I should be doing too. But in this case, it's probably even more so because you've got people that are maybe 14, 15, 16 years of age trying to do what, you know, 30-year-olds potentially are doing who have been training for the last 20 years in that particular sport. Um, and, of course, what they're doing nutrition-wise is of absolutely zero relevance to what a 
14, 15-year-old developing athlete should be doing, no matter what level they are. They might be at the top of their age group, um, but the nutrition practices or the nutrition needs and requirements and the practical issues around that will be completely different in a 14, 15-year-old school-age person compared to what it is for maybe a 30-year-old senior elite athlete. Completely different circumstances, completely different physiology, training age, all of those things. So, of course, the nutrition is going to be nothing like what that is. So I think as, as all of us, whether we're practitioners, coaches, parents, uh, other people that support young people in sport, uh, we need to be conscious of that and um, try and, you know, obviously there are highly influential people out there and there might be some good things that they can pick up from more senior or elite athletes, um, but not trying to copy, you know, piece for piece exactly what they're doing is going to be really important. Now, my rant for the parents, Steph. Now, this came mm-hmm. up uh, back in episode 6A, I think it was, about why nutrition is so confusing with um, Dr. Tim Crow. Mm. But parents who have a panic attack when someone suggests that they have, you know, white bread or white rice or a milkshake or something like this, you got to remember these kids are doing huge amounts of sport, often multiple sports, trying to fit it around limited opportunities to actually consume food around classes and school and everything they're doing heaps of homework they're often on public transport walking to and from school so they're very very active even outside their sport they're burning up energy getting around from a to b because they don't drive of course they're not going to have the same nutritional needs or have you know the same sort of dietary patterns would be appropriate as what it would be for you know someone in their mid 40s who sits at a computer all day drives a car to and from work and does not much physical activity apart from going to the gym for an hour or two. Mm-hmm. You know, the, yeah. the nutrition needs of those juniors, the energy requirements are just massive in some of these cases. Like I've seen juniors who go through like, you know, a litre of milk a day and half a tin of Milo a week and mm-hmm. the parents are like, oh, they're going to get diabetes. It's like, well, they're skinny as a rake. They're struggling to meet enough, you know, get enough calories in to meet their needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you're worried that they're having white rice instead of brown rice. Well. All switching into brown rice is going to do is make them feel even more full, make it harder to get the nutrition in, fall even further behind in meeting their energy needs and probably set them up for injury or illness down the track. Um, And so, you know, what is quote unquote the healthy diet for the general Australian population, which is, you know, older, sedentary, um, probably carrying a bit more body fat than, than they ideally would, is completely different to a very lean, very active teenager who's growing and doing multiple sports and has active transport, you know, multiple hours a day getting to and from school or practice or whatever it is. Completely different scenario, needs completely different solutions. So when you hear a sports dietitian or anyone else suggest, quote unquote, unhealthier foods, there's usually a reason for it. Yeah. And I think uh, as listeners will hear in this episode as well, we spoke about that to Ben and, um, you know, one of the points is us educating the the parents in terms of why we're recommending that. So, you know, it's not, you, ha- you know, you're having this specifically. It's like, okay, well, we need to increase energy intake or we need to increase carbohydrate intake and these are the strategies um, in order to be able to achieve that. So, yeah, but really good rant. Like um, you you were quite composed there, um, Al. Like you did that really nice and smooth. Um, but, yeah, you got a lot in. So, yeah, I, I agree with that rant. I, I can say I've sat in some consults years ago <laughs> with, with younger athletes and the parents and I've probably been 
appeared composed yeah. to them, hopefully, but yeah. under the surface, maybe not quite so composed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome. So today's episode, episode 31A, how are nutritional needs of young athletes different to adults? And we are joined by Professor Ben Desborough, um, who we have had on before, but I'll let you do the intro to Ben. Yeah, absolutely. So Ben is our first uh, return guest, uh, who, well, in terms of actually interviewing him twice. We had Ollie J across, split across two episodes, but it was one interview that we split into two. Um, so you might recall Ben was on a podcast, and I haven't got the number here in front of me, Steph, but he was talking mm. about um, can I have a beer after mm. a hard training session? So he's done a lot of research in that area of alcohol, um, and you might recall done a lot of research in caffeine uh, and actually cannabidiol, CBD as well, uh, which are all very adult topics, Steph, very different to what we're talking about today. Um, but Ben is also um, was the lead author for Sports Dietitians Australia's position statement on nutrition for adolescent athletes back in 2014. Uh, and he's also published a paper just last year, actually, in the journal Sports Medicine called Youth Athlete Development and Nutrition. And that's an open access paper. So we might even tweet out a link to that so people yeah. can, can access that and read it for free, which is great. Um, but Ben is a professor in sports and clinical nutrition at Griffith University. He's pr been promoted from associate professor to full professor since we last spoke to him. Uh, he's also taken on a new role for this season as the head of performance nutrition at the Gold Coast Titans NRL team, so rugby league as well. And as well as being you know, a practitioner and a researcher in sports nutrition, he's also a parent himself. He's got two daughters, and we'll have a bit of a chat about that in the interview as well. Um, and so he spent a lot of time, I guess, pulling together all the information available around younger athletes and, and what their nutritional needs and considerations might be. So not just you know, physiology, but some of the um, social and, and ethical and practical considerations as well uh, and that was done in conjunction with a whole bunch of people in various positions from you know sports medicine doctors specializing in teenagers through to people that were more around sort of youth development um, and things like eating disorders and body image and those sorts of things as well so we're going to discuss all of those kind of topics in relation to, to younger athletes today as well. Awesome. Looking forward to it. And it was um, episode 11A where he spoke about, can I have a beer after my hard training session? So highly recommend people go listen to that one because I'm often asked or looked at funnily when I'm um, drinking a beer after a hard run or even an easy run. Um, so go listen to that so I don't have to keep explaining myself, please. Yep. yep. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think th this one will be a really good one um, for maybe the parents Maybe they're the ones having yeah. the beers after training, Steph. But I think yeah. this will be a really good episode for parents who have young people in running, cycling or triathlon um, or, or coaches or event organisers or, or people that work with um, young mm -hmm. people through schools around sport as well um, because yeah. I think it covers a lot of the, the common questions that people ask or, or things that people aren't sure about in this space, which is, which is great. Mm. Yep. Awesome. Let's, uh, let's get stuck into it. Yep, let's do it. I'm going to go in and say, Professor Ben Desborough, welcome back to the Long Munch. Thanks for having me again, Steph. And uh, <laughs> Ben is fine. You refer to me as Professor Ben. But that is a really nice addition since the last time I was on your podcast is that I got promoted. So thank you for acknowledging it. <laughs> Uh, very welcome. So you're, yeah, you're only our second ever 
two-time guest. Um, the other one was um, Ollie J, um, and that was just because uh, I guess we had a really long chat with him, so we split that up in two. So really, you're our our first, second, second-time guest, two-time guest. But I guess since we spoke to you last time, you've you've become a full-time professor at Griffith University. Um, and you actually have also been awarded Fellowship of Sports Dietitians Australia. So, um, yeah, a, a massive congratulations on, on achieving those milestones. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, our topic today, I guess, relates specifically to the needs of younger runners, cyclists and triathletes. Um, it, it's been a, a question that has come up quite commonly for, for us. Um, and we know that you've done some specific work in this area, um, including being lead author of the Sports Dietitians Australia position statement on nutrition for the adolescent athlete in 2014, uh, and more recently, a paper in the Journal of Sports Medicine in 2021. So I guess, um, first question, what, what got you into this area as opposed to your other much more adult type research areas of caffeine, alcohol and um, cannabis? Well, that's a good question. And I might make a disclaimer up front <laughs> is that, yes, I do research papers in this area, but I do feel as though I'm a bit of a, a, a guest in an Airbnb uh, in that <laughs> uh, this is an area that I don't do a lot of personal original research in. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I hadn't done when I was first invited by Sports Dietitians Australia to write their position statement. Um, the reality is that um, very little adolescent sports nutrition research actually happens in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, we're often drawing on information that's been conducted um, internationally. Um, but nonetheless, we have a huge population of young and aspiring um, athletes in this country. And SDA at the time recognised that there was very little information to guide or support recommendations on what to do from a sports nutrition perspective um, in the sports nutrition space for developing athletes. Um, and at the time um, of um, SDA sort of approaching me about potentially doing this, I think it was the fact that I had a couple of adolescents um, yeah. and, and I was going through that sort of parental phase in my life that they thought, well, here's a bloke who who should know something about adolescence. Mm -hmm. And like all good parents, you sort of learn what to do after the event. Um, so it was sort of concurrent that I was um, dealing with adolescence on a domestic front and also reading about adolescent sports nutrition. So what, what that process involved was really getting a group of experts, national experts, not just dietitians, but some adolescent health experts, some sports medicine experts, some psychology experts, some food literacy experts, mm. and putting them all sort of in a virtual room and coming up with a statement around, well, what do we think is appropriate for developing athletes in the sports nutrition space? Um, and then from there, what tends to happen with these things is that it starts to snowball and then you, you keep reading because you do a lot of reading in that area. Um, and then you get invited to talk or explain what the position statement's about and then you develop networks and the next minute, international people seeing you as a, an expert in adolescent sports nutrition. And nonetheless, I was still very interested in the area and I'm um, deeply sort of passionate advocate for developing a healthy lifelong relationship 
with your body and the food that you eat. And I've always thought that sports nutrition was a great vehicle to have a po- to develop a positive relationship between food and and health, rather than being focused on avoiding disease or managing disease after it presented. Exercise and sport always seemed to me to be a great partnership between how to promote and advocate for healthy nutrition because you could see the benefits in sport and get the psychological benefit from that engagement as well. So I was always interested in that sort of space. Mm-hmm. And obviously, as you transition from child to, to adult, there's some you know sort of critical checkpoints that occur there, which I think are really important for people to have some exposure to that, you know, developing a positive relationship on that front. It's very difficult. You know, some people don't develop that positive relationship and that can have lifelong consequences. And I think that's, 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 that's really, really a challenge that, you know, I've sort of taken on as something to try and avoid in as many people as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so I was going to say, you've got two daughters your, yourself. So, um, Assuming that they're involved in in some some types of sport, um... well, um, two corrections there. Oh, I, I, oh. Well, I do have two daughters, okay. but they're no longer adolescents technically. So normally we define adolescents as thirteen to eighteen year olds. Yep. And I've got one that's twenty and one that's yep. nineteen. So I've, I've washed my hands of them. And <laughs> sports nutrition advice for adolescents. They're actually uh, they're actually not particularly sporty in a competitive sense. They do exercise um, when they were adolescents. They did they did sport, um, but I'm not a particularly um, dictatorial parent. I would have to say I, I let them. Um, I want them to have exposure to exercise and, and continue to do exercise and healthy nutrition. If they want to be com- if they wanted to be competitive, then I was certainly happy to support that. But um, neither of them are sort of ultra competitive in a sort of sporting sense, mm-hmm. and I, I haven't jumped on the bandwagon and forced them into tennis camp or or anything that was sort of going to shuttle them down a particular pathway that they weren't naturally drawn to. But that's just my approach. Yep, yeah. So y- you weren't sort of that annoying or embarrassing sports dietitian dad who's always trying to get them to improve their nutrition? Uh, well, I was. <laughs> so, um, and I was also their very annoying and embarrassing netball coach. <laughs> um, who also doubled as their team's sports dietitian, uh, which then branched out to be the club's netball um, sports dietitian. Um, and then we, we, you know, we critiqued the, the cafeteria and I found myself working in the cafeteria from time to time in sort of voluntary capacity, much to my disgust at what was available and, and what kids consumed. Mm. But I, I think it is important to have a focus on the reality of application in these sorts of environments. Um, you know, as a dietitian, uh, we, we tend to spend all of our days thinking about food and healthy choices and, and why, um, why we should be making those choices. And they seem obvious um, to someone who's well-educated and has access and opportunity and the motivation to eat well. Um, and all of those things aren't necessarily the case for other people. And so we, we need to recognise and appreciate that within the settings in which we work and use our skills and abilities as best we can to sort of moderate those behaviours, opportunities, motivations, whatever they may be, capabilities. So does the cafeteria look quite different now to what it did when you first stepped in? Uh, well, I haven't been back for a little while. I suspect it may have regressed. 
<laughs> yeah, fair enough. I don't think kids like it when they come and ask for a large snake and, and the person behind the counter says to them, do you think you really need that? You haven't even, you know, you've just had breakfast and it's like 8.30 and you haven't played yet. Yeah. I don't think that's the message that they're looking for. No. They just want no. the snake. So you say, come back after your game. Yeah. Yep. I'll, I'll, have, I'll have a special one for you. Yeah. It's about yeah. half the size of this current one. There'll be, be a glass of water beside it. Yeah. That sounds very, very sinister, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm really not that sinister. I'm not that <laughs> All right. Um, before we get back to the, the practical stuff, because as you said, it's obviously really important um, for, for younger athletes because their, their schedules, their routines, their ability to access food, all those things are going to be different to what it is for an adult. Um, but thinking more, I guess, about the, the biology, first of all, with younger runners, cyclists and triathletes, what are some of the key things that might be different in terms of physiology um, around exercise that, that might be relevant to the nutritional needs of, of young athletes compared to adults? Yeah, I, I guess um, when, you, when you look at sort of the, the biology, physiology of young people, um, you, ha you have to also have a look at the context in which they are performing um, running, cycling, swimming, or a combination of, of, of endurance-type sports. So you can't separate the two because things like duration, when the events occur, um, how frequently they occur, um, are, are all facets that then overlay on how much fuel is going to be used and whether that fuel is available or whether you've got systems developed to be able to, um, you know, uh, metabolise certain fuels and things like that. Um, so I, I, I don't tend to separate the two things, but if we, if we look purely at physiology... There are a number of things that occur as someone, as I said, transitions from childlike to, to adult-like traits. Um, there's been a, a reasonable amount of work done on um, fuel use um, during exercise. And historically, um, there was theories around carbohydrate um, being unable to be used as well in, in a in a adolescent athlete in comparison to an adult athlete or you, de you develop the capability of, of, of um, utilising carbohydrate to a greater extent as, as you transition into adulthood. But the more recent sort of studies and the more detailed studies that have looked at both training status of an individual and, and as we know with adults, the, the more you train, that changes your capability of the metabolism to burn off certain fuels. And, and one of the challenges with with younger individuals is that they often haven't had the years of training to develop that adaptation. So it's not a, necessarily a hormonal or a pubescent sort of development. It's, it's purely a training adaptation development. They sort of suggest that the fuel or substrate use differences between adolescents and adults probably aren't that great. They're probably more related to, um, to, to the training status of the individual and, and how much training the individual's doing. Um, certainly, there's changes in thermoregulation that we're aware of. Um, there's a change in the sweating response. So the capability of, of, of producing um, sweat appears somewhat um, related to uh, pubertal development. Uh, that doesn't necessarily always convert to um, heat risk or risk of heat illness in, in adolescents that are competing in exercise because there's different potential mechanisms that the body has to dissipate heat that may be um, uh, seen or observed in adolescent athletes. So things like 
um, radiating um, heat or, or blood flow out to the skin as opposed to necessarily um, producing large amounts of sweat as a form of dissipating heat appears to be greater in, in, in younger athletes than what we see in, in adults. Nonetheless, when you actually have a look at the amount of fluid that some adolescent athletes lose during competitions like triathlons, they can still lose fairly large percentages of their body mass. The absolute amount might be down a little bit because they might be lighter, but in terms of in, in percentage terms, which we often talk about as sports dietitians, you can still see values that are beyond the you know one and a half two percent that we might often quote as being a you know theoretical threshold of being a sort of performance concern. You can certainly see some adolescent uh, triathletes and runners lose you know three three and a half four percent of their body body weight. So that that's that that's uh, in anyone's terms uh, a a shift in, in fluid, which is which is quite significant relative to that person's initial weight. Yeah. And how does, um, <clears throat> obviously at this age, they're, you know, they're still growing. How does that add to the, the mix in terms of nutritional needs potentially for younger athletes? Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a really interesting area. So, you know, if we, if we look at, at, at growth, um, when, when, when the body sort of lays down lean muscle tissue, um, which is often the case, and then there's sort of organ and bone development and things like that, um, that requires energy. Yep. That energy really is in, um, or it's been quantified in two forms. One of the forms is, or the easiest way of describing it is, it's, it's like building a house. There's, there's, there's energy that's actually in the timber and, and the bricks that's, you know, they've had to be manufactured and, and, and they have stored energy within them, mm. okay? And then you've got the person who's building the house, the builder, who's, who's burnt off energy, laying all of those building blocks down. Yep. Now, in terms of the stored energy, like the materials, that, that energy from a growth perspective has been sort of quantified and it's relatively small. Um, you get a, a larger energy... Um, loss or larger energy um, requirement from from the energy required to build the structure if you like but still it's it's relatively small in comparison to the amount of energy that you burn off when you do exercise yeah okay so for most young individuals who are developing the largest influence on their energy requirement is going to be to do with how much training they're doing not necessarily whether they're in a high growth phase or not yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The other thing to remember is the body is very, very clever and some things occur naturally as a process of puberty, of adolescence, which means that your body becomes more efficient at using the nutrients that it has. So um, protein is a, is, or, or amino acids, which make up protein, are a really good example. What, what appears to happen during high growth phases or, or that, that coincide with high growth phases is that your body becomes better at recycling um, things like amino acids that have previously would have burnt off and, 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 and broken down into sort of smaller products. So what they call a sort of amino acid utilization or recycling is, is enhanced naturally as a consequence of some of these growth phases. So even if you were to eat the same amount of protein, you, you will utilise it to a greater extent during adolescence. And that's one of the, 
one of the things that contributes to you laying down um, sort of more lean lean tissue. Hmm. Okay. So I guess in terms of, you know, people thinking about how much do I need to eat in terms of, you know, calories and protein and things like that, it probably sounds like, you know, trying to work that out is not necessarily going to be that different to how you would do that with an adult. Um, and it's more, I guess, just about the training that they're doing, which uh, as we'll get to in just a sec, um, the, the nature of the training could be different, but potentially they're doing multiple sports and trying to fit it in around school and things. So it can add up to quite a lot. Yeah. So if, if you want to if you want to establish someone's energy intake in adolescence, that's really difficult because you know, they might be doing lots of different sports and lots of different things. But there are some new equations for estimating the basal energy requirement in adolescent athletes. Okay. And they're actually been developed by uh, uh, a guy who's Australian, Reed Real, um, and they've been published um, last year um, in the International Journal of Sport Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism for those people who um, you know work in the sort of sports nutrition space. You might want to have a uh, have a look at those equations because they have been validated from. Uh, resting metabolic measures of uh, several hundred adolescent athletes. Yep. And so, and they're slightly different from the regression equations that you get through Schofield or Harris Benedict or the traditional ones that you might use. And and they they do have a small. Um, typically, they, they they produce a a slightly larger basal metabolic rate, largely on the basis of the requirement for growth. And then you have to factor in the energy cost of exercise on top of that. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into some of that that practical stuff as well. So obviously, as we said, you know, before with school, there's going to be some potentially not necessarily harder or easier, but different logistical challenges with fitting in training, eating, and recovery around the school timetable, um, and then potential you know other extracurricular activities that they might be doing outside of sport as well. Um, do you want to get us give us a bit of insight into what that looks like with athletes sort of sort of training around school and how that can be. You know, potentially a bit of a challenge that might be different to say adults. Yeah, so th- th- there's there's a few few differences here from a practicality perspective. Um, firstly, um, it may be that you've got an individual who's got um, uh, you know training requirements for multiple different sports. So um, we often see um, adolescent athletes who, for instance, may a part of the year play cricket and another part of the year play rugby. Or in the case of you know, you know, endurance athletes, they, m- they might be swimming for their school, competing in triathlon for themselves or a club. Um, and so you've got these sort of um, conflicting timetables and potentially mm. calendar programs where you can see um, you know, sports with, with potentially different requirements in the, in the case of a skill sport or a power sport versus an endurance sport or different um, endurance sports um, concurrently. You've also got a situation where um, time and, and the, the opportunity to eat is potentially reduced because we've got large amounts of training blocked in with large amount of um, you know, class, class activity where the person may not be able to um, certainly eat. They may be able to drink, and, but there might be some restrictions on what they can drink. It may, may just be water. Um, and you're also uh, in a situation where these people are often eating in uh, a mixture with, with other people and, and young people don't always necessarily um, eat uh, or think independently. So what they might eat and what they might consider to be acceptable to eat 
may be very much influenced by those people who are around them, their peers, um, as well as the usual things like you know, availability and access that um, you know, a- adults may also you know, have challenges with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it is very difficult to make a, you know, a, a broad recommendation on what to do um, to adolescent athletes. It's, it, I, I think it's very much about understanding the context of the individual that you're dealing with. Um, things like um, exercise-associated anorexia. So if they if they have uh, hard swim training sessions and they just don't feel hungry immediately afterwards, and then they find themselves in class at nine o'clock, and then you know the next sort of eating opportunity is is ten thirty. You know that's 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 a you know a very sort of um, important thing to understand within the context of that individual, particularly if I've got you know, more training in the afternoon or, you know, only small eating opportunities throughout the day. So planning and, and, and strategizing are critically important. Yep. And when you say anorexia there, you're talking about sort of loss of appetite as opposed to an eating disorder. Correct. Yeah. So yeah. anorexia being the clinical term for loss of appetite. Not, yep. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, and so I guess for some of those challenges, particularly that sort of before school training, I guess then, um, and we might talk a little bit about this a bit later on, um, obviously quick, easy, convenient sources of food or, or drinks that they can have sort of straight after training in that mad dash to, to class is going to be important. Or if you're in, involved in organising, like if you're a coach or you know, a sports director or someone who's organising those training sessions, you know, making sure it finishes to give them adequate time to have something to eat before class starts, uh, those sort of things that might be able to help athletes to meet their needs. Yeah, I mean, that, that's uh, absolutely critical that, uh, that there's some good structure and planning around the opportunity to and access to a, um, be able to um, consume or, or uh, be provided with, you know, uh, food, but, you know, importantly, fluids as well from the point of view that, um, you know, you, you, you've got something there readily available with a limited time so that the person can either then have that at that point or... Um, you know, take it with them and consume it on the run. Mm. And I guess the other challenge there is often that, um, you know, for, for most of us uh, in a workplace, there might be a, a kitchenette or a fridge or something where we can go put put things. There might be somewhere where we can do a bit of, you know, basic food prep before we sit down to eat. We can put together a snack or make a sandwich or something like that. But for these guys, again, probably have to be a bit more organised in terms of having that all pre-prepared, having things that, that don't need to be sitting in a fridge all day or pre-freezing them and letting them thaw, those kind of things to make them safe and, and ready, ready to go when when they need it. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing is that um, it's about sort of normalising that behaviour as well. Yeah. Um, the one thing that became very clear to me um, when my own children were growing up was, you know, people used to say all the time, oh, you need to talk to the parents. Well, um there's a group of people that have a greater influence over a child's um, eating intake uh, than parents, and that's their peers. Mm. So if if you're in an environment where other people aren't eating or are um, making sort of comments or having an influence over your eating, that's far more likely to have a direct influence on what that child does. So normalising the opportunity to have snacks, um, making a, 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 like a recognition that it's acceptable for the child to do that amongst their peers um, is, is, I think, uh, as important as the actual provision of the food stuff itself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
Um, are there any other, and it doesn't necessarily have to be sports specific, but any other unique or specific nutritional needs or issues that are potentially quite different in junior or, or teenage athletes compared to adults that we need to be aware of? Um, well, I, I mentioned one. I think the, the societal or social influence is a, is a really critical one. Um, the other thing that I would probably highlight is the need for um, consistency of, of messages and the need to repeat messages. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we have to realise that we're dealing with people who, whose brains are developing. Their relationship with um, the food that they eat is, is evolving and developing and that um, saying something once or providing something once and then expecting that to then be um, accepted um, and usual practice uh, within an adolescent environment is um, completely inappropriate. Um, I look at an adolescent athlete as a, as a developing person. I don't look even at a, you know an emerging elite adolescent athlete as an elite athlete. Uh, we know from looking and tracking elite athletes, you know, ones who really move into the mastery level of their sport, they can come from all sorts of pathways. They can come from the direct pathway. You know, you're just a prodigy from, you know, eight or nine years of age. The Tiger Woods puts a golf club in his hand when he's three and he's, he's destined to become elite in that sport. But we also have the Chrissy Wellingtons of the world who don't turn professional until, you know, they're in their late 20s, early 30s and then become, um, you know, multiple world champion and then retire five years later. Mm. Um so, so we, we, don't, we don't know the pathway that this individual adolescent athlete is on. Um, we, what we do know is that they require a, a consistent environment where messages are reinforced, most likely by multiple people. So you know, teachers, coaches, um, parents, peers, uh, that, that sort of reinforces certain behaviours over months to years before it then becomes adopted yeah um and so it is that long you have to take that long-term view um with 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 the individuals that you're working with Mm. yeah and so if if you're dealing with a year eight athlete and expecting them all even you know in year nine they'll know what to do right you're only setting yourself up for disappointment (laughs) (laughs) yep fair enough um and, and do you think with, with adolescent athletes as opposed to other adolescents, is there any differences that you would see in terms of how you might approach them learning, I guess, what we would call the life skills of nutrition, you know, the skills around food preparation and cooking, uh, going to the supermarket and shopping? I mean, I guess in some cases, athletes may potentially move out of home at a younger age to move somewhere because of their sport because they're in a you know a, a team environment or an institute setting or something like that uh, which might be a little bit different to others that may stay at home longer but do you think that there are any uh, specific differences in terms of how you would approach that or, or at what age you would approach that in an athlete compared to someone who's not doing sport well being an athlete does present some opportunities for you to um, improve nutrition literacy early on in an adolescent hmm. um, you know so um, I, I that's uh, going back to what I said earlier about you know, the relationship between sport and exercise and nutrition has always been something I've been sort of a positive, you know, been a real advocate for. So things like doing cooking nights with a, 
with with a team, a young team, is a really you know great opportunity that many young um, adolescents otherwise who weren't athletes may not get the opportunity to do. So it does multiple things apart from teaching them uh, you know one or two different um, you know recipes and then giving them exposure to potentially other meals that they haven't had. But it also again normalizes um, eating or needing to eat to both fuel and recover and adapt within the context of their peers that are also involved in their sport. Mm. So it, it, it normalizes healthy eating and the need to, to eat in order to adapt well to the training that you're doing in an environment where everyone sort of shares that message. And I think that, that's one of the unique things about sport that um, nutrition can certainly capitalize on is around that sort of um, literacy of nutrition. And some people get that at an individual level by way of, you know, they're in an environment domestically where they, where they develop their nutrition literacy. But, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with adult athletes now who have no nutrition literacy. Um, they're, mm. elite, they're elite athletes, but they've come through, um, you know, backgrounds where they just ha- haven't had exposure to nutrition. It hasn't been a priority. Um, they may not necessarily be, um, you know, from environments where there's lots of resources available to them, where there's lots of money available to them, where they get a lot of support growing up. They're gifted athletes, but they don't necessarily um, come from environments where they, where they have that level of support. So um, even in some of the adult um, sports nutrition that I'm involved in now, we, we have to go back and, you know, almost go back to some of the sort of adolescent sort of teaching strategies. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess flipping around that that previous question around, you know, how might you approach uh, adolescent athletes or, or have specific needs that are different to adults? Are there things that we typically would focus on or, or work on with, with adult athletes that may simply be um, unnecessary or, or irrelevant to younger athletes? Um, well, Apart I mean, I, I think... <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean... Uh, you know, alcohol is one of those things. I mean, adolescence is a natural period of experimentation. Mm. Um, I, I would much prefer to see uh, an adolescent athlete experiment with food than other forms of risk-taking type behaviour. Mm. Um, to me, working with adolescent athletes is, is just about providing a safe environment. And that's not necessarily just a safe environment about food and nutrition. It's a safe environment about body image and, and, and the language that's used, the respect that you have for yourself and the respect that you have for others. But it also provides food. Food is a great opportunity or provides a great opportunity for you to connect with people, with and in this case, young people, and um, discuss a whole range of issues that might be important to, to young people. So I think... Um, as I alluded to earlier, not everyone's surrounded by a really good network of, um, you know, wise heads and, and, and good um, common sense uh, attitudes and advice. Um, so if you're in a situation where you're providing sports nutrition servicing to adolescents, um, it, it may be that you, you are a source of, um, you know, uh, good advice, sound advice that the person may not necessarily be getting on a sort of routine basis and you can develop those sorts of relationships with with athletes so that's why you know things like cooking nights and what have you they're, they're a great opportunity not just to to do the actual uh, food prep but to actually sit and have a meal 
and then discuss nutrition and, and, and you know, and anything else that is relevant or, or, or of interest to, mm. you know, that's going on in sort of a young person's sort of life. Yep. And so uh, it's amazing what you can learn over a meal. Yes, absolutely. And I guess so for the teenage athletes who are kind of competing at that higher level for the age, do you take a different approach compared to those um, teenage athletes that are doing it more at a, a level for enjoyment um, or lower level of competition in terms of um, education? Yeah, so usually, it, I mean, if and we do have some world champions who are still, still teenagers, right, in mm. certain sports and, and the like, and you can be genuinely elite and still be an adolescent athlete. Mm. But that's that's the unusual circumstance. In those sorts of contexts, you would hope that you've got access to, you know, highly qualified coaches, a support staff or network of people around you that, um, you know, including a, you know, possibility of provision of services by a sports dietitian where you can provide that sort of really one-on-one and tailored advice. Um, and so the advice that you might give in that context um, is, is, is very specific to that individual based on a relationship that you've developed over time. So we were talking earlier before the podcast started about body composition management and monitoring um, and, and, you know, we've, we've got lots of sporting environments now um, which are sort of moving towards health over performance in the developing athlete space, as in why are we measuring body composition of, you know, young athletes who are, you know, 11, 12, 13 years of age, you know, skin-folding individuals and the impact that that may have on how an athlete feels about themselves and how relevant it is to the performance outcomes that you're trying to to, to manifest further down the path. Whereas if you've got an established relationship with a elite level adolescent athlete and, and that, that relationship has been ongoing and it's supported by the athlete themselves and they buy, they buy into it. Well, that's a very different context than when you're working with a, you know, an under 16 state basketball squad or a, you know, a, a developing swimming squad or, or you know, a, a less elite um, environment in that sense you know w- when you look at even elite level junior competition things like you know um, and there's been a number of studies done in this area one recently published that looked at world um, world youth athletics uh, finalists so in middle and long distance running so in the world Ath- junior athletics championships and they tracked people who made the finals in these races from middle from all of the middle to long distance races, who went on and won or performed in world championships and subsequent Olympic games in adult competitions. Uh, I think the, the stats from the paper that I read were about 50% of those people who were in the finals of those races weren't even competing or earning IAAF points two years after the event. So you, you can be junior elite but that's not elite, and so um, there's a, there's a, there's a there's a big big gap between junior elite in terms of performing well at the junior level and genuinely elite. And so um, I'm talking about you know athletes in that um, support network who might be going to you know um, 
Olympic Games or World Championships as a junior, you know, full um, adult competition, as opposed to just a junior elite performer who might be going to, you know, World Youth Championships or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. In my mind, they're two, they're two separate categories. Um, and so do you find that there is a point, I guess, an age or a stage of development where you switch the approach to more or less what you do with an adult or you, it's very, very individual and you've really got to see what that particular um, individual has done right from the, from the start? Um, no, I, I just work off um, more that uh, the framework that... Um, uh, you know, we sort of, we, we operate in Australia, we have the talent framework that starts with sort of foundational movement and then moves mm -hmm. into sort of an elite pathway. So mm -hmm. it's not so much an age, it's more a performance level mm -hmm. um, is, is when the advice sort of changes. Obviously, you need to be aware of the chronological, biological, physiological consequences of development, mm -hmm. but the sort of advice and servicing that, that I would provide is more to do with their level of achievement in terms of where they're at. And that is also related to the support and services that that individual will have around them. So um, the model we use was developed um, by Jason Goldman, the athlete development pathway. Um, and so we, when we developed this SDA position statement on adolescent athletes, we, we use that to say, well, is it that this is the advice for athletes who sit on this pathway between these levels. Um, and I guess just thinking about sort of some of the typical parent concerns um, for younger athletes, um, so there's kind of some typical ones that they might have for their kids when they're training um, and competing. Um, so what are your thoughts on, on these? So I guess firstly we often see parents that are, yeah, pretty shocked and concerned when you recommend flavoured milk or some kind of high-carbohydrate, low-fibre snack or drink. Um, you generally see the anxiety levels rising and they can make some kind of comment about how unhealthy it is or that it's not good to have that much sugar. Why would a sports dietitian perhaps make such a recommendation um, and how do you kind of, I guess, um, explain that to the parents? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a really um, good question. Um, and I would only make those recommendations under, you know, very certain circumstances under specific context, sort of broadly saying, well, I want you to have a chocolate milk after every training session. Mm. I think, you know, to, to all individuals, I don't think that message is, is advisable. Mm -hmm. uh, even in the elite environment that I work in, we have the prescription of some pre and post resistance training session um, drinks only to certain athletes um, in a squad. Um, it, it's, it's really about um, identifying individuals who, who need or have a need for that by way of their sort of performance and recovery. Um, so uh, it is, there is a challenge in communicating these things. One of the things that, that we've done in our research on adults is, is look at different you know, beverages, for instance, and, and what, what does that do in the context of normality around then going on and eating other things and, and as opposed to doing these sort of short-term studies where we just look at one parameter and go, okay, this parameter moved, that's great, 
the recommendation is now for, for this. Um, so, so I would look at something like um, any sort of education around a product that was, for instance, high in sugar. Well, wh what is it about sugar? It's not the product. What is it about having a bit more sugar that this athlete could benefit from? And so um, it, it's, it's, it's a case of, I guess, going, going back to the fundamental nutrition and saying, well, you know, sugar's refined carbohydrate. This is what we use carbohydrate for and taking them through that as opposed to identifying that, you know, chocolate milk's the drink for you. And that's the only message that comes across. Mm -hmm. uh, we're fueling performance and that fuel can come from multiple different sources. Um, you know, this is... Th these are different options that are available. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, basically helping educate the parents as well. Um, so, so just yeah. while we're on the point of fluid in recovery, mm. uh, the position statements do say that for most adolescent athletes in most circumstances, water's a pretty good drink yeah. post-exercise. Yep. Um, so, so uh, as I said, you know, those, are, those other messages really need to be contextualising an individual who, 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 who needs those nutrients and, and it's not able to necessarily get them from you know, what we might consider to be healthy sources or, you know, um, sources that, that they've got access to. Yep, yep. Um, so I guess another, yeah, hot topic is um, sports nutrition supplements. Um, and this can include anything from being sports drink um, from the convenience store to, I guess, the um, protein powders, which are really popular. Or it might be the latest pill or potion that the teenagers seen online. So with these sorts of products, any thoughts on whether they are necessary and how young is too young and how parents should um, approach this issue with their child? Well, it's a, it's a really um, good question. Um, and going back to the uh, topic we were talking about before, which is a, this, nat this a natural period of experimentation, um, it could be experimentation. It, it, it could be an impulse. Um, you know, not all adolescents think things out clearly and methodically. Mm -hmm. It could be, here's something that someone's just said I take and, and it was there, I felt pressure to do it or maybe I didn't feel pressure to do it or maybe I just wasn't even thinking. I've, I've, I've taken this supplement because, um, you know, uh, another person who is in my swim squad who's a better swimmer than me takes it. Therefore, it's the sort of thing that I should be, I should be taking. Uh, if we go back and have a look at the, the evidence around supplement use in adolescence, it is, it is quite high um, uh, when, you, when you look at sort of survey reports, but supplement use across the adult population is also um, very high. Uh, evidence around effectiveness, uh, for the most part, is um, is very weak, and that's largely because doing performance studies in adolescents, so in athletes that are less than eighteen years of age, you quickly run into ethical um, issues associated with conducting those studies. So the, the evidence isn't there. Um, safety is a you know a, ma a major potential issue. Um, it's really only probably creatine that I've seen. Um, had sort of rigorous exploration of safety in, in, in an adolescent environment. It seems to be reasonably um, inert as far mm -hmm. as a, a supplement goes. But obviously, um, with all supplements, you've got the contamination risk that potentially comes with that. So, mm -hmm. and you've got your, you know, your product testing and your other elements that you can do to sort of risk mitigate. Um, again, most, most adolescent athletes don't have 
um, a sports dietitian, um, you know, uh, within their inner circle. Um, so uh, we're, we're very heavily reliant on um, the use of frameworks from the AIS and the promotion of those um, so that you're using, um, you know, the, the sports-specific sort of foods or those Category A supplements um, if, if you were planning on going down that path. Um, things like uh, caffeine, which is a research area that we do a bit of work in, um, most of the doses that are required, obviously, uh, from an ergogenic perspective, are usually prescribed on a, a relative per kilo body weight basis. Um, and so you're dealing often with people who are much lighter. And so when you see a serve or an amount given, um, the impact on a young person is likely to be um, both, um, you know, I guess more pronounced from a, a naivety perspective. They often haven't had these things. And, and then from a dose perspective, a relative dose perspective higher. So both of those things are a concern. Mm -hmm. The default position for most position statements is don't touch them, discourage mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. But we need to appreciate, as I said earlier, that adolescents do things on impulse sometimes. Mm -hmm. They're highly aspirational. They're highly influenced. Um, the marketing for some of these products is um, often very sort of focused around trigger points for young people, um, you know, gaining muscle, looking good, um, being attractive. Um, they're highly accessible. There's um, supplement shops, um, you know, in, 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 in many of the places that, uh, people visit and obviously online they've got a high presence and they don't have to do much searching before their ads are popping up in front of them on on Instagram or, or whatever platform that they're using. Um, and so the, the access and opportunity and availability of these things is very high. And, and of course, adolescents are convinced that all elite athletes are using these things and you can't become elite unless you're using them. And so part of that message needs to be, I guess, uh, debunked or demythed. In, in terms of most of the adult, most of the, the genuinely elite athletes that, that I've seen often don't take supplements. And they may have tried a lot of them and then they find out that they don't work or their high levels of training that they've done, they're not getting the sort of potential benefit um, that you might see in someone who's, who's less, less well-trained. So I think the use of um, high-profile advocates um, that can dispel some myths, uh, because it's not, it's not going to be a sports dietitian that, um, a young cyclist listens to. It's going to be an elite cyclist mm. or an elite cycling coach that a cyclist listens to. Mm. So it's about finding those stakeholders who work in the sport that you work in, and and and, and you know having having that sort of level of promotion and, and connectedness. Yeah. Um, and having oh, sorry, and just before yeah. I go on, and the the final thing I think about that is is having good communication with 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 the athletes that you're working with. They have to feel comfortable coming to you first and saying, I'm thinking about this, what do you think? Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that relationship, you're at a much greater risk of seeing someone take something. Yeah. You know, because you just won't you won't know. Yeah. And that probably goes for, for coaches and parents as well. Like if you have that real, you know, supplements are terrible, don't you ever take them kind of thing. Well, if they're gonna experiment, they're probably not gonna tell you. That's right. Um, so, you know, they do have obviously, um, uh, you know, quick sites that they can go to, to visit. Um, so a little bit of that education around, we'll check this on your site first to see if it's banned or, or not type of thing, or, or if you're not sure, come and, come and see me. Mm. But, um, 
what what you yeah I guess that message again needs to be reinforced and redelivered multiple occasions. Exactly, and yeah, not just saying no, but actually explaining and walking them through the the reasoning behind your response. Yeah, don't 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 ever just dismiss a young a, a young individual because mm. you, you don't know what it is. Mm. It's the basis for the question that you're being asked. Exactly. You might yeah. think, well, you're getting something about. Um, you know, creatine, but it's but it's it's three steps before that mm. that the person's really had the issue with. That's then come and manifest as a question about creatine. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. And I guess finally, a, a pretty serious topic that's been ga- gathering a lot more media attention across a range of sports in in recent years is the attitudes of parents, coaches, and support staff to issues around body composition, body image, performance, and health. Um, any advice for parents here in terms of what might be considered normal and appropriate practices within sport for junior and youth athletes and what's not, uh, what some red flags um, they should be looking out for with their children that might indicate uh, a problem with the, their training environment? Um, well, I, I think this is a critically important issue in and it's something that sport has historically um, not been particularly assertive at managing. But what we're starting to see now is the shoots of many sports saying, okay, we, we need to have some structures, some policies, and some clear advice and guidelines as to what is acceptable within our sport. And no two sports are the same. You know, it's very different between the athletes you're dealing with in gymnastics in comparison to road cycling or, um, you know, rugby league or netball or whatever sport that you want to pick. Um, and, and my view is that um, your role as a parent is to um, be there as a support and um, advocate for healthy nutrition. And so if you're in a situation where your child wants to withdraw from training or withdraw from the sport, then it's important to explore the background to what's going on there um, Every sport will need to manage um, how how their coaches um, respond and work with developing athletes, and and sports are starting to develop policies around things like should we measure body composition or not, or if we if we are, in what context are we measuring it? So, for instance, at the moment we're working with swimming, and we're working with swimmers who work with developing athletes. So, so a- athletes in that sort of um, pre-elite programs and in that context measuring body composition is in my opinion inappropriate because there's not enough support around the athletes and the coaches to warrant the benefits to be gained by finding out a little bit about the body composition of those individuals swimming is already a sport where people wear minimal clothing and have to parade around in front of their peers. It's very confronting before you then start talking to them about body shapes, measuring body proportions, and so on. The long-term impact of that can be catastrophic for a developing individual. And you don't necessarily need to um, be measuring or commenting on body composition in order to... um, you know, uh, have an influence on what you're doing with that individual. The idea for a coach at that level is that 
the, the child, the adolescent athlete, the developing athlete enjoys the sport and wants to stay in the sport. Kids who are overweight, they don't need to be told by a coach that they're overweight. They already know. Mm. They're going to get enough of that from their peers. Mm. They come to sport for an opportunity to do something enjoyable with, with their leisure time. Mm. It doesn't need to further compound how they may or may not already feel about themselves. So it's an opportunity to be a positive advocate around healthy nutrition, nutrition for training, nutrition for recovery. And if you're not dealing with genuinely elite athletes, then don't have a performance focus that's um, concentrated on performance at all costs relative to the health of that individual, uh, particularly in the long term. So, so a lot of sports will become a lot clearer in what they recommend their coaches do but as a parent, as I said, you're in the best position to monitor what's happening and be a positive advocate for healthy nutrition. And that's not just about what's done, but how it's done and the language that's used um, and, and how training is undertaken, whether there's punitive comments made about doing extra work because someone's body shape is a certain size or, um, as I said, the, the language and approach that's taken in and around sort of body composition. And so um, I, I would encourage parents to work with their coaches and their, and their sports to ensure that every child that comes into that environment, every, every aspirational athlete leaves having had a positive experience in that regard. Mm. Yep. Absolutely. And I think that, as you said, you know, the role modeling of the parents as well, I mean, that doesn't just to extend to the time they're, at training or you know on the way to or from training that's at the dinner table at night time and the the way not only the way the parent uses language around the child but around their own eating and you know perception of, of self and, and body image and so forth you know if you've got a parent that's sitting there eating salad and saying oh, i have to eat this because i'm dieting or whatever well that's then sending a message to the kid at the other end of the table um potentially about what what they might do or or think that they should be doing as well it, it, tr treat all of your behavior as a learning opportunity because that's what the young people are doing around you. Mm. They're, they're learning from what you're doing, not necessarily just what you're saying, but how you're conducting yourself and the incidental things that they pick up along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what, you know, in terms of the, um, the body composition stuff and doing skin folds and, and those types of things, I think, um, understanding yeah like where when and where is it needed if it's needed um and uh and having the education because quite often what can happen in variety of sports even in the adults is um you know skin folds of body composition is taken but it's actually not explained to them and they have no idea what it means except for yeah like we sort of said they think it's oh we're telling them how fat or not fat they may be which it's not actually what it should be used for well i i think um the, the other side to this is that you know when you when you do nutrition training you do you come, become a sports dietitian and you take an anthropometry course mm. certainly the course um as it was um taught when i went through was all about how how to take a skin fold how mm. to identify a site Mm. You know, um, not not whether you should. Mm. Mm. 
you know, that, that seems to have been lost a little bit yeah. in terms of the conversation. Mm. And so just because you can doesn't mean that you should. should yeah. Mm. yeah. And, and we were talking uh, again prior to the podcast about, um, you know, the experience of having skin folds done. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it it's, um, causes anxiety and stress in elite adult athletes. Yeah. So... Um, it, it, it is, is, is not an ideal um, tool to use in developing athletes. Mm. Um, and, and so it should be done, you know, un, only under really specific circumstances, as you allude to, Steph, where the, where the athlete buys into it. Mm. And they understand what it is. And it's related to their performance. It's not related to just a component of their body. Mm. What does this do to parameters that I need to improve you know, in terms of my power on a bike, yeah. in terms of my, you know, running speed. Yeah. So yeah. unless it's related to performance and the athlete buys into it, you shouldn't be doing it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, it's been a great discussion, Ben. Just to finish up with, is there anything else that you think we've missed but is really important to note about nutrition for, for younger athletes? The key for me is to, to recognize that people are on these different pathways. Sports specialization or the argument around sports specialization has been around for decades. You know, so you might be working with a 16, 17-year-old triathlete. Um, that they may be world-class in another sport that you're not aware of. Mm-hmm. They're, they're in that sport for potentially a very short period of time, potentially their entire life. Most people transition in and out of different sports through, through, through their life. When we talk about an athletic pathway, we talk about a lifelong involvement in sport and exercise. And within that, there's usually a small elite pathway. But we tend to spend a lot of our time talking about the elite pathway rather than the sort of more holistic view of potentially an elite period and then a lifelong period. And so um, when I'm dealing with an adolescent athlete, I, I very much focus on them having a lifelong relationship with sport. They're having a relationship with this sport at this time, and, and maybe that will, will take them through an elite pathway. They may go on an elite pathway in another sport, but what they're doing is they're understanding about the importance of how their body adapts to the training that they're doing via the food that they're consuming. And that's universal across all sports. So wherever that individual wants to go, you're helping that individual become uh, more experienced at the relationship between the food that they eat and the exercise that they're doing. And that's the focus that I have. Yep. Okay. Excellent. Well said. Okay, we are going to finish off with our bonus round now, Ben. Now, I know you've done a bonus round before, so we've mixed up the questions to find out a little bit more about you in your uh, second interview with us. Um, So the first question, if you could go back to the end of high school and start down a completely different career path, you don't get involved in sports nutrition, what do you think you would have done? Uh, My my first answer would have been, I would have been an orthodontist. (laughs) Because when my my kids were getting braces, they they both had braces, I was fascinated. I was like, (laughs) this is like building, but, you know, on a micro scale. And you get to move this piece and move this piece and then... And you get to see 
you know, these pictures of before and after, and it just it just looked sensational. And I just thought, how to transform someone's someone's life, you know, because a smile is so important. I had a um, an injury when I was uh, 17 when I was playing soccer and I, I fractured my uh, maxilla, the bone in your front of your face and lost a few teeth. And, and it was devastating at that age to experience sort of um, that disruption in terms of your appearance. Mm. And I just thought, well, what a, what a gift that is to be able to take somebody's, um, you know, su- such a such an obvious and physical expression of themselves and, in, and make their life better for them. Mm. So I, th- I thought about orth- orthodontics, but then, then I thought, oh, don't be so, you know, don't just go for the obvious sort of response. I- I've, I've been actually totally blessed by the career that I've had. Mm. And, and it wasn't something that I set out to work at a university and become a professor of nutrition. I just didn't want to be an electrician like my dad. Yeah, really it yeah, wasn't yeah. That, I did, that I didn't like it. I just knew I couldn't be that because mm. I've been on enough job sites to know. No, that's, I can't do that. So I have to do something else. And then I've meandered through this sort of, it's like the Brisbane River, you know, it sort of turns and different, you know, and hooks back on itself. And then you get lucky and you find a fast flowing bit and you grab a hold of that. And so um, if I went back to high school, I'd, I'd want to ride the river again. <laughs> it's probably the way I'd describe it. Yeah. That's good. No, fair enough. Is that, that's not really answering your question, but that's why. No, it is, yeah. Oh, the orthodontist yeah. one. That, yeah. That's a different career yeah, path. Yeah, but you're on the right path. Yeah. yeah. Good. Absolutely. All right. Um, your favourite place to escape from work? Well, that's a pretty obvious one for me right. at the moment. It's a, it's, it, no, it's a golf course. I'm, I'm addicted to golf at the moment, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a sign of age. Yep. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, what's a sport you've always wanted to try but you've never had the chance? Well, I really like going fast. I'd really like to like drive a like a, a racing car. Yep. Like a like I'd like to feel what it's like to drive a Formula One car and the sort of the downforce of those cars because it's the sort of car that would be very scary the slower you went, but the yes. more the faster you go, the more control you'd have. Mm. And I, I'd like to have a go at that, but I can't see that happening. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, your favourite moment from the Tokyo Olympics or Paralympics? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, favourite moment? Um, well, it's 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 hard to go past the uh, decathletes, the Australian decathletes, particularly the the fella in the the fuzzy background that you could see at about one hundred and twenty metres, cheering on his mate as he crossed his finish line. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, the names escape me. There'll be people who, who can recount their names far faster than I can. But I, I do recall actually watching that live and seeing the guy in the background's arm go up as he knew that his mate had crossed the line. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, that's impressive, that. Like, yeah. I, I thought that was really, that was re- really, really good. And then their celebration afterwards when they when the, yeah, the other guy yeah, finished as well. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. I, th- I thought that was excellent. And finally, and this could be related to any aspect of life, what are you most looking forward to in 2022? most looking forward to in 2022 um oh that's a very that's a very very good question i didn't read these questions beforehand i i may hop on a plane again in 2022 and may and i may go overseas i've got an invite to go and speak at um the american college of sports medicine yeah um and i I, i'm still sort of should i go should i not go will the world shut down again yeah and you but it's nice to just like be in that 
that mind space of thinking, maybe, mm. isn't mm. it? Because you've, you've had to, I, I've just had to compartmentalize my brain and go, well, that's not happening. Forget yeah. about that. Yeah. Whereas now we're sort of starting to get a little bit tempted, aren't we? Exactly. Whereabouts is ACSM this year? Uh, San Diego. Okay. There's worse so, places to go. Sorry? There's worse places to go. Yeah, well, I've never been, but mm. um, anywhere um, to travel just mm. sort of sounds good. My wife bought me a, a little suitcase um, for my Christmas present um, this year. And we sort of both looked at it and thought, well, this is either going to be a, like a great present or an absolute dud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, yeah. Still, it's still got a plastic on it. I haven't, I haven't gotten to the point of saying, yes, I'm definitely going yet. Yeah. Kept the receipt. So we'll, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Ben. Uh, it's been great to, to chat to you again, um, but on a, obviously a very different topic. And we've had, uh, as we mentioned before the podcast, a couple of your protégés, Ducky and Chris, talking about your other areas of interest in caffeine and cannabis. So we've covered caffeine, cannabis, alcohol, and now adolescent athletes. I think we've, we've got the set. That's right. Yeah, you've completely exhausted me. I'm sure Ollie's got about another three topics. You can go back to him. He's going to, yeah, he'll be definitely on third before I come up with another <laughs> area of expertise, mate. Yeah. Sports nutrition comedy. That's uh, Maybe I'll move into that area. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Weird, weird anecdotes. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time, Ben. Uh, again, thanks for having me on, guys. Cheers. All right. Thank you very much, Ben. That was great to hear your expertise. And as I said, I think hopefully answering quite a few questions that um, parents or coaches or, or teachers and support staff might have. Steph, do you want to give us a really quick summary on this topic? Yeah. Yep. I'll do a quick one because we'll also wrap it up in um, the following episode that we'll have um, as well. Um, so I think uh, some really good points by Ben was... Um, recognizing that there's um, different kind of environmental factors that influence children's nutrition choices. So we need to consider not just the nutrition message, but what the the child's level of education is and what their setting is. So consider again, each um, individual and their background in terms of when we're giving out a nutrition message. Also in terms of when we are providing education on nutrition, um, or promoting particular nutrition messages just with their children because they're still, you know, there's a lot of brain development, et cetera, still going on. Um, we need to continue with that nutrition message. So keep repeating it. They're not going to just, you say it once and they'll take it on board straight away. So repeat it and probably get um, a number of support people around to help promote that message. And also just knowing that kids are, you know, not really always that influenced probably by the parents, unfortunately, as much as we'd like them to be. Um, and unfortunately, not always that well influenced by perhaps practitioners or sports dietitians or even maybe at times coaches that um, can often be influenced by their peers um, and the obviously the environment around them. So we need to try and, I guess, um, influence the environment around them to send that signal as well. So to normalise the, the behaviour so that getting in extra snacks, et cetera, um, is easy for them to do and they see it as being normal because their peers are doing it or, you know, their folks have the extra nutrition ready for them. So it's not seen as being abnormal. 
And then also in terms of also he spoke about, you know, well, is fuel use dif- different for, for junior athletes? Because there was thought a while ago that it may be different to, to adults. But really in terms of how they use fuels in terms of burning carbohydrates and fats, it's really not that different to adults, even though they don't have the years of training, et cetera. It's um, recent research suggests it's not really all that different. How they thermoregulate, that is different. It doesn't necessarily relate to an increased risk of heat, heat illness um, because their body is, is able to radiate heat, et cetera. And then in terms of often we think, oh, well, um, the child's energy needs are going to be a lot more because they're growing. Um, actually, the energy cost of their exercise is what plays the biggest part in their energy needs. So, yeah, they're still growing and they do need a bit of extra energy, but the actual exercise that they're doing, because kids are doing so many different activities at school and after school, that um, plays the biggest role in their energy needs. I think like that's probably some of the main points there um, in terms of they're just really active kids, so we just need to consider that. And I think, you know, they do need a lot of food if they are exercising a lot. Um, And then we just have to send that message in a number of different forms to promote it. And then also, if we are practicing as a sports dietitian, practitioner or mentor, also just think about what were what behaviours we're sending them as well and um, why we are doing what, what we're doing. So in terms of we spoke about skin fold measurements, do we actually really need to do that in junior um, sport and in athletes? Probably not in most cases. So relate what we're doing to whether it's needed for them and what is the performance benefit. All right. Great summary, Steph. Let's look forward to next week, though, because it's going to continue on the same theme. We've got episode 31B. What's our topic next week? Our topic is the same now. It's how are nutritional needs of junior athletes different to adults, but this is a nice practical one and we are lucky enough to be joined by Danielle Stefano, who you do a lot of work with, Alan, Um, so I will let you do the introduction. Yeah, so Danielle's a a triathlon coach um, through her business, Elotic Professional Triathlon, so she coaches um, elite senior uh, triathletes and paratriathletes, um, some of which went to Tokyo last year for the Olympics and Paralympics. But she also does coach uh, a high school group as well in triathlon. So she does some junior coaching uh, and also has a few juniors that are sort of transitioning from sort of juniors towards um, or eventually elite juniors and then you know, into seniors as well. So she sort of covers that continuum and has different groups across those the spectrum of sort of uh, more recreational juniors through to more competitive and elite juniors and then into you know very elite senior professional triathletes as well. So it'd be good to have a chat to her about, I guess, how as a coach she approaches those groups differently, uh, both from a training point of view but also how that affects their nutrition as well. Awesome. All right. So if you have a question that you'd like answered on The Long Munch, you can get in contact with us via social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Uh, and of course, you can leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or any of the other platforms that allow you to do that. And just a reminder, you can also subscribe to the podcast on many of those platforms as well. And obviously, you know, if you have a particular topic that someone's asking you about in the coffee shop or on your training ride, you can tell them, hey, hang on, there's a podcast mm-hmm. for that, um, that might be answering your question that you've just asked. So uh, yeah, spread the word. We'd love for uh, 
people to help answer those questions rather than the myths and the Dr. Googles continuing on. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's it for us, Steph. Looking forward to our episode next week with Danielle Stefano. Um, be great to hear from her about the, I guess, differences between uh, the junior athletes she coaches and then the, the senior elite athletes. But uh, until then, have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Awesome. See you next week. <laughs>